Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. I wanted to start today's episode by just declaring outright that I love British cookbooks. I love the writing, I love the design, I love the photos, and as a result, we carry quite a few imported cookbooks at Book Larder. I've mentioned here before that my husband is British and I go to London each year. So as we got ready for this year's trip, I thought I'd try something new and reach out to one of the authors of a book I've loved recently to see if they'd agree to be interviewed just for this podcast. And I'm very lucky that today's guest, Felicity Cloak, took me up on that offer. You may know Felicity from her How to Cook the Perfect column in The Guardian where she draws on her own cookbook collection and tests how other writers make classic dishes in her quest to craft the perfect version. You may also know her from her delightful Instagram account, where she documents her cooking, her travels, her self-proclaimed greediness, as well as the exploits of her adorable terrier, Wilf. She's food columnist for The New Statesman, and her work earned her the Guild of Food Writers Food Journalist of the Year and New Media Award in 2011. Felicity and I met at the British Library in London in July 2019 to discuss her latest book, One More Croissant for the Road, where she details her personal culinary tour de France, cycling over 2,000 kilometers in search of iconic dishes and the perfect croissant. Somehow, we managed to find the noisiest bit of the British Library, so please just be patient with the sounds of staff coming and going as we have our chat. Here's Felicity Cloak and One More Croissant for the Road. So I did notice that you biked here. I did, yeah. <laughs> I actually, I do live quite close, that's an admission. But I tend to cycle everywhere in London because it's just, I mean, the traffic's quite bad, so it's the quickest. And also it's quite, sometimes it's sort of very adrenaline racing because, you know, someone tries to run you over. It can be quite fun. Yeah. I like it. And yeah. it's not, I hate being stuck on a bus, yeah. seeing everyone else going faster. I'm quite impatient. So yeah, I cycle almost everywhere. Yeah. And I've got a basket for my bike that I put the dog in, so can even take him. Oh, excellent. The current book is about cycling around France and it eating. Is. Yeah. So what inspired you to go that direction? So, as I said, I cycle anyway and I enjoy cycling. I find a great freedom. So it's a surprise to me because I didn't t- take up cycling for anything other than, you know, commuting until re- I don't know, maybe the late 20s. And um, a friend of mine suggested that we should cycle. She was going to cycle from London to Brussels. I was like, well, I'm not really doing anything else. I've just been dumped. I was like, okay, I'll come with you. Buy a new bike. I loved it. I found to my surprise that I just love that feeling of freedom of, you know, the open road. I mean, it sounds very corny, but it really is. You see the landscapes bowling along. You can eat loads. I just really loved it. I felt it was a great way to explore somewhere. So I did a few more rides. In 2017, a friend of mine moved back to Provence in the south of France. She decided to cycle there, invited me. I couldn't think of a good excuse, so I went along. Best holiday of my life. And I just thought, this is the perfect way to see a country because you're traveling sort of fast enough that you cover ground, but slow enough that you can see the landscape changing. So it's a nice sort of middle ground between walking where you don't really get very far. You might walk from village to village 
and driving where I've done a lot of driving around France you just don't see the places really and um, I just absolutely loved it and I loved sort of that moment where you suddenly see it changing from cider to wine or olive oil to butter all of those little things that when you're spending three weeks somewhere you suddenly start picking up on and I thought well you know cycling is becoming increasingly popular People love France, everyone's got that nostalgic memory of French food being the first sort of foreign food that you eat. Certainly when I was a child, you know, French food was the fancy food. My dad might cook coq au vin for a special occasion or something. Um, we always used to go on holiday to France, so I've got that nostalgic pull. Just thought, maybe there's a book in this. Maybe some people would like to come along for the ride with me mm-hmm. in doing this and sort of see how France is not in that kind of you know a year in Provence I discovered France thing but just like this is France now this is what the food's like um, just a little adventure really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah and it was an adventure yeah it sounds like it it was yes <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. it was uh, some highs and some definite lows yeah yeah people always ask me was it fun and I really struggle with the word fun because some bits of it were fun um, a lot of it was quite hard work and it was yeah. a great experience is my compromise I say yes it was an amazing experience I'm really glad I did it but you know on nights where I'd cycled 160 kilometres because there was a train strike and it had rained relentlessly there were mosquitoes there was nothing open for dinner and I was camping on my own that that wasn't that fun yeah but then the next morning I'd wake up and I'd cycle to Toulouse in the sunshine and eat a cassoulet and have a glass of rosé and I was like this is incredible yeah so yeah always sort of quick succession made up for the bad bits yeah Mm. you sort of went on a path of iconic French foods did the Mm. did the French foods determine your route or did you seek out the foods after you planned your route so it was a bit of both. I mean, I wanted to do 21 stages because the Tour de France has 21 stages. Right. And there were more than 21 classic French dishes that I could have picked. I love French food. I love all food, I'll be honest. So I sort of made a list and then I went to a big travel bookshop here in London called Stanford's and I bought a big map of France. And I sort of laid it out on the floor, tried to stop the dog walking on it. And I put all of these sort of pins in it and looked at them all and thought, well, some of it just isn't doable. Some of it's too close together, some of it's too far apart. So I tried to pick 21 dishes that were a good spread across the country, but also a good spread in terms of, you know, sweet and savory, meat, fish, vegetables, not that many vegetable, solely vegetarian dishes in the book, because that's France, but there are a couple. And then sort of worked it out like that and tried to get a a logical itinerary. So the only bit, you know, there's a, the, the centre of France, which is a project unfinished that I'd like to go back to, and then the northeast of France, just because I've cycled through there before on my way to Brussels, and there was no one dish that I felt was really mm. iconic, and that is no reflection on, you know, the amazing chips they do there. I love a chip as much as the next person. <laughs> but, um, you know, I had moule frites covered in Normandy, and yeah. I just, that's the one bit. So I cycled from Strasbourg back to Paris and didn't trouble the northeast on this visit. But yeah, apart from that, I think I did a quite a good, did 2,000, I think 2,400 kilometers. So that's quite. I can't think how many that is in miles because I always do kilometers because it sounds more, so it sounds better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, quite, it's quite a number of miles. Yeah, and so that was your biggest ride, I'm assuming, that you've ever done? Yes, Yeah. by a long way. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I would have liked to, in my ideal world, I would have done everything on two wheels because I'm a completist. I like that kind of challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality was that I only had sort of six weeks to do it because I write a weekly column for um, the Guardian newspaper here and there's only so much I could do in advance. And I realized that Tour de France, they take coaches between the different stages. So then when I realized that, I didn't feel so bad about taking some trains yeah. for bits that I just didn't, you know, there was no one dish there that I needed to visit. So I took a few trains as I said there was a train strike that also added slightly to my stress levels you know I cycled all along um, the south coast of France I cycled from Strasbourg back to Paris so I did quite quite you know I cycled um, all through Burgundy did a bit of an alpine climbing so yeah I think yeah. I covered enough enough ground <laughs> yeah. and you had friends met you along the way mm. how did you decide who to invite, did people volunteer? <laughs> because I have to say, if we were friends, I'm not sure that's the invitation I personally would have wanted to get. I'm not much of a cyclist. A couple of people said to me, I'll come, but I'm not cycling. Can I meet you in a, you know, I'll stay at a hotel and we can go out for dinner. And I thought, that could work. But also the itinerary was sort of very much up in the air. I didn't want someone to come and mean not to be there or, you know, I had to get the, the miles in. So that I, no one ended up doing that. I did meet a friend in Nice who didn't cycle with me. He was just there for the weekend. But he said that I talked to him for about three hours because I'd not spoken to anyone in English for a week. And so I was like, amazing. So I talked to him and he drank rosé. A couple of people didn't even own bikes back in the UK. And so I think it was a bit of a baptism of fire for them. But they, in general, people were really game for it. And they sort of, there was enough stopping for... You know, when you're cycling, you stop. I always tried, if I was on my own, not if I was with people, to do 25 kilometres before breakfast, just to have something to look mm. forward to. But even if you have breakfast before you leave, then you have to stop for your little sort of coffee and pastry mid-morning or your cake. Then you have lunch quite early, because in France they eat lunch quite early, as far as I was concerned. So you needed to stop then or you won't get to eat. So that was important. And then in the afternoon, you know, maybe you'd stop and have a little beer somewhere, etc., and then you'd have a big dinner. So I think there was enough to keep people happy and I didn't have any mutiny. There are a couple of times that people were a bit miserable, but they didn't really have an option, I'll be honest. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think everyone's still speaking to me, which is good. That's mm. good, that's mm. good. Did you have to turn anyone down? Besides mm. people that uh, only wanted to meet you for the food part? No, I don't think, I didn't, I wasn't overwhelmed by offers, I'll be honest. Um, I think people were quite put off by the distances, even though so my friend Ali, who was four months pregnant at the time, came along and she did the Burgundy lap and she got an electric bike and actually Burgundy in the valley isn't very hilly, but it, she just thought it was amazing speeding along on her electric bike. So there wasn't a massive, if I was on my own, I'd push it a little bit more because I could um, and I had no one to blame but myself. But when I was with people, I tended to take it a bit easier because I wanted them still to be speaking to me by dinner time because yeah. I wanted to chat to them because it was such a rare joy just to chat. You know, my French is decent, but it's not, it's not without, you know, that sort of, endless laborious translation things that so is very nice when I get to talk to people I yeah. just I was off yeah yeah what were the food surprises like were there any dishes that you maybe weren't as familiar with that you thought oh I'm not sure about this or were there any revelations I think the food surprises one was and I've spent a lot of time in France over the years just you know on holiday um, for extended periods my parents used to have a house in the south of France that we'd go to every summer. So I thought I was quite familiar with France and French food. Um, but when I was eating it sort of day after day and eating in restaurants in general, because I didn't take 
a camping stove or anything with me. So I'd quite often have a little picnic, but I wasn't doing any cooking. I realized that French food is a lot more delicate than I had realized until I was eating it day after day. And I didn't really think about this until I got down to Marseille and I ordered a pizza because people had told me that actually the pizza in Marseille is excellent because there's a big sort of southern Italian immigrant population there that came over in the 19th century. And, you know, British food writer that lives there told me quite a bold claim. He said the pizza is better than Naples. I thought, I've got an excuse to eat a pizza. Great. Um, so I went and ordered a pizza and I hadn't realised until the pizza arrived, but before it, several seconds before it, was the scent of raw garlic. And I was like, I haven't eaten anything this strongly flavoured for maybe three weeks. And that was just hit me that I'd been eating these very delicately spiced dishes, classic flavors, but nothing sort of overwhelming anything else. And then I get this big hit of raw garlic and anchovies and black olives. I was in heaven because I love strong flavors. You know, I'm quite a magpie like eater or, you know, eat, um, I don't know, Vietnamese one night and, um, you know, French the next, Italian, whatever. Yeah, you can uh, you do know, that in London. Exactly, yeah. you, can, you can eat the world and suddenly eating, um, you know, chicken gizzards for every meal was just a little bit samey. So that was the revelation. I didn't expect to find that. But also I realized that how to appreciate those flavors and actually don't need to put um, chili sauce and everything. Everything doesn't need to have seven cloves of garlic in it. And that was actually, I've come home and I've started to think more about sort of reining back slightly on the flavors and just letting the ingredients slightly speak for themselves. Yeah. And today I think the ultimate proof that I've gone native I was in a little French delicatessen quite near my house buying some cheese and I saw a jar of green peas that were the colour of, um, I mean they're kind of yellow basically mm. and in Britain now because we've got this reputation of overcooking your vegetables, <laughs> no one cooks anything more than al dente, it's just like the ultimate faux pas, apart from mushy peas which are a different yeah. beast. And so I bought this jar of peas because everyone tells me that French jar peas are amazing. So I bought them and I'm looking at them in a slightly nervous way, wondering what to do with them. But <laughs> anyway, we'll see if I can appreciate those peas. I'll know that I've really become a little bit French. Yeah, yeah. So the book is called One More Croissant for the Road. Mm. Croissant obviously play a very important role in the yes, book. Yes, yes, <laughs> I love them. So actually, weirdly, I didn't like, I thought I didn't like croissant until um, about six or seven years ago. And then I bought one for a friend, bought one to keep her company and realized slippery slope, I absolutely loved them. And when I was cycling down France in 2017 with my friend, I sort of started rating them just for fun on Instagram because they're the one thing that you get almost everywhere, a plain croissant. And I'm, you know, in my normal life as a food writer, I'm very used to doing little critiques of stuff. And even though I was on holiday, I just couldn't help it. So anyway, I started doing this and people seemed to like it. And so when I got back to London, I started rating croissant. It became a bit of a thing, slightly <laughs> obsessive. And so in France, I decided that I was, you know, this was the ultimate opportunity to find out what a really great croissant was. And so I tried to have at least one a day. But that was harder than I thought, because sometimes you just couldn't find a bakery. I think I only ate 34 croissants in the course of my trip, which sounds like a lot, but actually in is not enough. Of, yeah, yeah, it's not It's not sufficient. <laughs> I feel like I've got unfinished business. And that probably includes, I think I ate five in one morning in Paris, just because Paris, I didn't want it to be the best, but it was. Yeah. I mean, the croissant in Paris is just next level patisserie. I mean, I have managed to find some really decent croissant in London, and I would quite like to take one on the Eurostar and put it against the best Paris mm. ones to see 
who's really the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are your criteria? What makes a great one for you? I see a lot on social media that have very perfect um, lamination, you know, very light and airy. Every single layer is distinct. So that is technically perfect. But for me, I like it to be a little bit squidgy in the middle. So I like it to be really crisp on the outside. Almost like I had one down in Bourmes-les-Mimos on the south coast that was, it was almost like it had been deep fried in butter. It was incredible. Mm. And so I like that sort of very crispy nature and I like it squidgy in the middle. And then I like it to be quite savory as well. That sort of yeasty flavor. I don't like it if it's too sweet. So yeah, but I think largely it's textural and I like to be able to taste the butter. I don't go for the ones that are made with margarine. Even if you can save 10 cents on it, it's not worth it, you yeah. want the butter version. But I don't put anything with it. I'm not a jam person. I don't put, you know, I took a jar of Marmite with me, but I didn't let it touch any croissant. <laughs> <laughs> what do you use it for then? Oh, strictly for emergencies. Like if you had some like really dry bread, because sometimes I couldn't find anything to eat, so I just had the end of a baguette. And I love Marmite. I don't know if all of your listeners will be familiar with it, but you know, it's like a yeast-based spread. It's made from brewer's yeast, yeah. leftover brewer's yeast. It's incredibly salty and savoury. It's like umami, umami in a pot. Umami in a jar, yeah, that's yeah. what I always describe um, it as, yeah. It's, you, you probably had to be born to it, but it is delicious, I love it. It's also apparently good for keeping away mosquitoes, but that, that would be an excuse, <laughs> frankly. I just that. love it, no. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I just put that on some bread, but I didn't put it on any croissant because that yeah. would be sacrilege. Yeah. Even I agree, that's too much. <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, that French food is a lot of people's sort of introduction to international food or foreign mm. food. Was it for you? Oh, definitely. My parents are both massive Francophiles. My mum actually was a French and German teacher when I was growing up. But we just, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it was very close because we lived in the south of England. So we would go every single holiday, we would go camping. You know, if you've got three kids, and not a huge amount of spare cash, then you go camping and it inevitably rains. And But it's a cheap holiday, isn't it? So we would go every single year, somewhere in France, and then they moved to France, so there was that. And then still every year, I just feel that pull. I just love it. I love every time I walk into my local station in London, which is uh, King's Cross St Pancras, and I see the departures board <laughs> saying, you know, next departure to Paris or Lille, I still feel absolute thrill even though I'm only getting on the tube I'm just yeah. like yes I could just go you know if I get my got my driving license with me I could just go to Paris I could yeah. just do it and yeah. that is just I love it I absolutely love it I sometimes flirt with the idea of moving yeah I don't know. we'll see yeah <laughs> it feels like the right time at the moment but yeah it does. Mm, oh, it really yes, does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I understand where you're coming mm. from. I'd love to just kind of go back a little bit in mm. your history and kind of how you got into food and mm. that sort of thing. How did you get interested in cooking? Short answer is I'm really greedy. I've always been greedy. I've always loved food. Um, and we were sort of, we did cook growing up because my mum worked and so, you know, any help was welcome. Um, and then, I don't know, but I don't remember really cooking anything for the pleasure of it until I got to university and the food wasn't great. And we moved into a little student house which had a terrible kitchen, you know, it was one of those electric rings that didn't really work. But it was the time that Jamie Oliver had become sort of big. Mm -hmm. And so one of my housemates had a Jamie Oliver cookbook and she was from London, so she, it sounds ridiculous now, but I don't think I'd ever really eaten an aubergine before. I knew what they were, but I didn't think I liked them, so I didn't eat them. She introduced me with her London ways to the aubergine and how it could be delicious. Yeah. What real lasagna looked like, another revelation to the not from London person. <laughs> um, and we just cooked because you know, it made us feel grown up to do little dinner parties. And okay, the food was never served until 11 o'clock at night. Everyone was very drunk on cheap wine. But that was, you know, it, it felt sophisticated and 
I just, yeah, it was just a fun sort of project to do and I just became more and more interested. And then when I left university, I went to work for an art publisher who was just starting to do cookbooks. And they published The Silver Spoon, the big Italian book. They were the first people to do it in English. Well, the only people to do it in English. I worked a little bit on that. And I sort of found it interesting, but I wanted to write myself. And so I left that job to my parents' horror. I resigned. And I went to work in food magazines for so even less paid in publishing, if that was possible. <laughs> but I just loved it. And that, I, you know, the idea that you could just think, oh, that's interesting, walking around in the supermarket. I wonder what that is. And then write an article and get paid a tiny bit to write it. I just absolutely love the fact that it sort of encompasses travel, history, bit of science, culture. You know, anywhere you go in the world, you can connect to people through their food. And I love that. It yeah. just, I've never lo lost that kind of real greed for both tasting stuff, but also finding out more. As a cook, do you tend to be more intuitive? Or are you a recipe follower or somewhere in between? Um, I think for my column, I have to be a recipe follower because I test the format of it is that I test sort of five different recipes for say something like um, lasagna. Right. Um, and then I try and put them together into a perfect recipe. So for that, I have to very much follow other people's recipes. I'm not like that at all in my, my normal life, such as it is. I very much, my idea of a dream is to just open the fridge and think, what can I make with these things? I love throwing stuff together and not really following a recipe. Which is a bit of a shame because when I do follow recipes, quite often it's amazing. And you know, I'll, I'll make something from Yotam Oxalengi and think, oh, I never would have put, thought of putting dill with pasta and feta, but actually right. it works really well. Yeah. Um, so I'm probably not the craziest cook, but I, I'm quite intuitive. I can, I can usually make a really decent meal from, from what's in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And that's fun for me. I yeah. enjoy that. Yeah. You mentioned your column, and obviously you use cookbooks pretty heavily mm -hmm. um, in your column. How do you even decide? where to start like you know you're 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 making the perfect lasagna like mm. how do you even figure out like whose recipes to reference so i've got my store so i've got um i live in a really small central london flat but i'd say probably half the wall space no joke is books and it's mostly cookbooks sometimes you go to them and they don't they're not sufficiently different and so then i think well i know what i bet that um say Jamie Oliver or Martha Stewart or someone like that. Wonder what they do, and you'll just give it a try, even though you're not sure it will work. You just want to try it to see if that's useful. And so I sort of start with my books because you, you know, you've got to have the big guns in there. You've got to have the uh, Marcella Hazan. You've got to have her. You've got to have Anna Del Conte. People like that. But also, then I want some slightly more left field people in mm -hmm. there. So it's a little bit of a balancing act from going for the people that could be described as authentic with a capital A, and the people that actually. I use the Serious Eats website a lot, I love it. They sort of feel like they're doing what I do, but in a much even nerdier way, Yeah. Um, which is great for me. They've done more work, so I don't have to. But you know, they might put soy sauce or something in it, and I just think, I put soy sauce in my ragu, people are gonna go crazy. But you know, I try it just to see whether it might work, but I'm not often as brave as them as to say, put it in. Yeah. So do you then follow your own recipes? Like when you want to make lasagna, do oh, yeah. you go back to your... Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that sounds big-headed. But, no. you know, I've tried the others and yeah, then I've, yeah. made, I've tailored it to my taste. And I think that's what people like about the column that I do is that I tend to also give ideas. So, for example, if you don't happen to like say a really you know kind of a classic dry lasagna i'll say oh make say jamie's because that's much wetter and so mm -hmm. i've given you the option 
is very much my perfect version and I'm aware that that is incredibly subjective and so I give I give options for people that might not share my tastes yeah um, so yeah I hope it doesn't come across as quite as prescriptive as the perfect tag yeah. might imply yeah yeah. You obviously have a big cookbook collection, see a lot of cookbooks. Mm. Who are some of your favorite authors and what are some of your favorite cookbooks? My hands down favorite cookbook is a book called The Prawn Cocktail Years by a chef called Simon Hopkinson and a food writer called Lindsay Barham. And Simon Hopkinson just does amazing, really. He's from Lancashire in the north uh, west of Britain. And um, he does amazing, sort of quite simple, he trained, sort of French trained, but quite simple, very full flavoured food. And I find our palettes aligned. Mm. And so this book is just all of the dishes that were in fashion in the UK in the 20th century. So it goes from the sort of real Edwardian sort of Scotch woodcock and sherry trifle and all of that sort of classic British stuff. And it's got the sort of chicken Kiev of the 70s. It's got like the ragu bolognese of the sort of 60s when Italian restaurants were really fashionable, Black Forest Gatto, all of that stuff that was, you know, massive at one point, and like Steak Diane. And it's all the kind of stuff that I remember growing up with, but it's done really well. Like just, there's no sense of sort of this is ironic. It's, you know, it's done out of love with those foods. The prawn cocktail recipe in there is excellent. I yeah. still love a prawn cocktail. <laughs> um, so that's really my hands down favorite. Um, I've also got a massive collection of French cookbooks now, which surprisingly, I think in the UK, because French food has been quite out of fashion for the last 20 years, my Italian section before this was much larger yeah. than my French section. And now I've got these great books, some of which are out of print, but I'm just like a little, you know, every time I see a good book, I can't help buying it. And people have recommended stuff online. So I think the Anne Willen book about French regional cooking is really good. I think it's out of print, but I bought it online. That's really, really great. And a little one I bought on Savoyard cooking in the Alps. I'm really into that kind of molten cheese yeah. thing is my ideal meal. So that's brilliant. In terms of newer books, because I'm aware that both of those books came out a really long time ago, my really rating at the moment. Um, so hard because it's really difficult to get a chance to cook from other people's books when they arrive. I really like Nick Sharma's book, mm. it Season. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. really fun because, again, it was sort of familiar flavours put together in a different way mm -hmm. and it made me see obviously it's a sort of Indian American book and we're very used to hear sort of British Indian books and so it was nice to see those ingredients and those cooking styles in a different yeah. a different way so that's probably one of my favourites and then actually a book on Provençal cooking called Provence that is actually by a friend of mine, but hands down, if she hadn't written it, I would still love it. It's all her family recipes. It's not the kind of classic Provencal recipes that we get a lot over here. It's not so much the ratatouille and stuff and the fish soup. It's more like her granddad's nougat that he made for Christmas mm. every year. And, you know, their tomato sauce they make for their tomato crops and that kind of thing actual families eat, which is not the stuff I got in France because I was never eating in family homes, which is... Unfortunate, yeah. but yeah, it's just a real sort of breath of sunshine, which is quite nice in London on the summer's day when it's raining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As it is today. Yes. In the book, you also reference a love of Nigel Slater, which oh, I have to say yes. I Sorry, share Nigel. very much. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> Nigel. I can't believe it. Um, yeah, Nigel, I credit for my entire career because I, I grew up with 
So the milkman here, that you know, you get your milk delivered, and they used to sell a book every single family in Britain had, and it was called the Dairy Book of Household Cookery. Obviously, dairy products featured very heavily. So my mum cooked from that, and then there was Delia Smith, who I don't know how familiar she is in the States, but kind of like a less, less glamorous is mean, but a more homely Martha Stewart. Yeah, you know, she was everywhere. She's great, but she's very safe. Her recipes work, but they're not going to surprise you in any way. And then suddenly Nigel Slater appears on my parents' coffee table, not literally, the book, Real, <laughs> Real Food, I think it was. Oh, yeah. And suddenly it was just like, it seemed cool, and he, he wrote beautifully. It wasn't just like a anodyne little three-sentence introduction about where you might buy a duck. It was like how he loved sort of, you know, nibbling that duck from the bone after everyone had gone home and the joy of having hands covered in duck fat. And it was very sort of sensual, but it was just beautifully written and very honest and just seemed cool. And suddenly I was like, oh, okay, this, this, this could make cooking exciting. And I wanted to, I remember sitting down reading that book cover to cover and just getting really excited about all the recipes and wanting to cook them. And... That just said it hadn't happened with Delia. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I love Nigel. I love the way that he writes. I love the way that he cooks. I just think he, he's absolutely fantastic. He's a national treasure. Yeah. International treasure, possibly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I love your Instagram account. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you have a lovely dog named Wilf. I do have Wilf, yes. How did you possibly leave him behind when you went on the trip? <laughs> it's actually quite easy. Um, no, I love Wilf. He's brilliant. He's my little sidekick. And he eats quite a lot of my leftovers. Don't worry, everyone. He goes to the vet regularly. He doesn't get anything that's bad for him, or at least <laughs> not poisonous to him. He's a terrier, so he's quite robust. But actually, I just knew that I could bring him with me, to be honest. Um, he's got a pet passport, so he could have strictly come. But he weighs 10 and a half kilos, and I had to take a tent and stuff with me. I just realised he'd be much happier at home with his grandparents. So Wilf was in the lap of luxury in rural splendour in the sunshine. I kept getting pictures of him sent to me saying, oh, it's too hot for him because he's a Scottish dog, doesn't really like the sunshine. He'll lie in it for hours, getting too hot. And I was in rain in the south of France. I could not believe how unjust that was. But sometimes I used to lie in my little tent on my own at night, just watch videos of Wilf on my phone, <laughs> which is really sad. And then when I came back, he was quite pleased to see me for about 30 seconds. Then he didn't, didn't care anymore. Yeah. 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 So anyway... Yes, it was hard. I'm pleased to be reunited with him. But he's enjoy he enjoyed all the French recipe testing afterwards. Oh, good. He's a great Beth Bergignon fan. <laughs> well, who wouldn't who be? Who wouldn't I mean, be? Yeah, he's a good pot washer. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Mm. You seem like you have a lot of fun on Instagram. Where mm. do you see it sort of fitting into your life, both personal and work? It's What's an, your take? It's an interesting one because I definitely sometimes think you use this too much you do you know if you if you didn't I, I heard someone talking the other day about I think it was the chef Marcus Waring on the radio when he was you know asked you know lots of people don't have time to cook and yet we watch a lot of TV in this country and he said I think that if people spent less time on social media they would have time to cook which you know for some people is undoubtedly untrue they're just busy other people including me and I do have time to cook I would have time to achieve a lot more if I wasn't on social media. You know, I just find it really fun and it's a nice way to share stuff. I found it very useful when I was away because people would say, oh, go here, eat there, don't miss this. And it's really nice to get feedback in real time on things. People do get annoyed with me taking photos of food, but I'm not one of those people who moves the food. I don't, you know, stop you from digging in. I don't, I'm quite lazy, so I just, I will take the picture where it is and then that's done. But yeah, I don't know. I'm interested to see where it goes in the future and whether in five years 
the idea of spending this much time seems laughable and ridiculous mm -hmm. or whether it will just yeah continue to be normal yeah I can't quite see it at the moment but I find it a really useful tool and I love the fact that someone can say I'm reading your book in Australia yeah. or you know Seattle or somewhere like that that is the greatest thrill for me I just you know I suppose having grown up in print journalism where you didn't know whether anyone had read anything you'd written to, to see my book elsewhere or see my work or for someone to say oh I make your stuff and you know I live in um, you know South Africa or something that's amazing isn't yeah. it I just love it so I love the fact that it connects you with people and you can mm. see what people are doing you know in LA or you know Paris or anywhere like that you can just gives you a sense of food trends and it makes you feel much more connected and food people in general tend to be nice people yeah. I'm sure there are exceptions but people just tend to be very friendly and supportive and enthusiastic so yeah I think it's, it's a force for good yeah. so far yeah I yeah. try to stay out the political side of things yeah. one of the things that I think um, social media has also given a lot of credit for spawning is sort of the whole movement around like wellness and food yes and I just as a 30-something food writer who sort of peers, I guess, with a lot of the progenitors of that movement, mm. so to speak. I just wonder, like, what your take on that whole thing is. I find it problematic, and I do agree that it's very tempting. Like, the other night, I had something, I think I'd seen it in Bon Appetit or something, and on, on their Instagram, and it was, uh, it was called a summer ramen, and it was, you know, cold uh, udon noodles and sort of raw vegetables, and it was in a sort of limey soy salad dressing. It was delicious. I had this sort of rainbow of vegetables on top, so I made it. But I was writing, I was working late, and I was writing about tiramisu, <laughs> and I put a picture of the ramen up, and it looked beautiful, and that was the Instagram thing. I just had to admit in the caption that I would rather have been just face down in a bowl of tiramisu. But people don't. They might put the tiramisu, but they don't put the, you know, the baked beans on toast or the, I don't know, the, you know, instant noodles or something right. for dinner. They don't. It's very selective. And the thing that annoys me is when things have clearly just been designed for visuals. Mm. And I get, you know, release, media releases, you know, saying the latest most Instagram friendly menu in London and I just say oh I don't want to go there if you're yeah. deliberately Instagram friendly then that's not what I'm about um, and it annoys me when you see these dishes that are clearly designed to sort of shock or provoke interest on social media but the wellness thing is again problematic it's not how people eat it makes people feel very bad about stuff and there are a few people here in the sort of wellness trend that I don't think have a particularly healthy relationship with food mm -hmm. and it annoys me that you know I know that and I don't take most of what they say too seriously but a lot of people are you know obviously they're influencers people are influenced by it and it seems very unfair to put up those standards without knowing the full story so I'm very wary of all of that stuff and yeah. the green juice and the charcoal pizza bases and all of that they really spare me just it's you know it's when you think a lot about food and write a lot about food read a lot about food you know you do start worrying like am I having a balanced diet am I doing this am I doing that and it's you know I've spoken to experts and they said in general eat everything in moderation you'll be fine you don't need to think about you know your precise protein and vegetable stuff it's very easy to do but I, you know, I, I hope that it's a, a fad that will pass. Yeah. I don't think it means that we're eating more healthily. Yeah. It just means that we're feeling worse about ourselves. Yeah. So in terms of trends or 
things like that. Are there any like words or labels that you outwardly just completely reject or that bother you? Like mine, I will give you an example. The, the term foodie drives me insane. Um, you know, yes, where it's foodie's like, terrible. Foodie is a big one and I do, I, write, I host food writing classes here in London and I ask every single one of them, because we talk about these banned words, which I'll come to in a second, and I always say, has anyone got a better word for foodie? Because I'm hoping someone will come up with something, but it's just so, I mean, when I hear foodie, I cringe, because I think, that's not me, I'm not a foodie, you know, I have other interests in life. I mean, greedy, I'm happy to accept, I'm incredibly greedy, but foodie, no. Um, I'm also, anything that's like yummy, or om nom nom, or any of that sort of really infantile, thing is not for me and not any you know anything that's naughty or wicked or I just don't get it and the sort of I, I, I get why people call things guilty pleasures I don't tend to feel guilty about stuff I mean sometimes I eat too much and I think why did you do that but you know the idea of eating a packet of um, you know Doritos or something doesn't really make me feel guilty I enjoy them but any, yeah, anything like that uh, the people that call themselves flexitarians actually I'm really <laughs> That annoys me because everyone, by their nature, apart from people that swallow, say, a vegan diet, they're vegan, that's fine, great. Yeah. Flexitarian, everyone else is flexitarian. You know, sometimes you're vegetarian, but you're eating vegan. Sometimes you're, you know, I, omnivore is what I like. You know, yeah. I don't actually eat that much meat and fish in general, but sometimes I'm going out for dinner tonight with my parents. I will definitely go into a French restaurant. I'd be very surprised if I didn't have some meat. But, you know, Otherwise, I eat relatively little. I think I'm almost vegetarian, I'm an omnivore. Yeah. Obviously, I eat different things. Even my dog's an omnivore. So yeah, that's probably my biggest bugbear, that there's some sort of inference of virtue because you don't eat meat for every meal. It's just like, who eats meat for every meal? Cats, that's yeah. about it. Yeah. So yes, <sighs> rant. <laughs> so besides food, what else captures your interest? Are there other things that you could see yourself writing about in the future or? I'd like to see more travel, but that probably also ties in with food because it's hard to go somewhere and not eat. So I'd really like to explore that a little bit more. I think I'm just naturally both greedy, but also quite nosy. So, you know, I love to go somewhere and really sort of nose into people's everyday lives is, is fun for me. Um, and the same goes for history. I'm quite into sort of history, food history in general, sort of social history. Yeah, I'm interested to see at the moment we're in an interesting position in this country with relation to our relationship with Europe, as everyone may have heard. Yeah. Um, and so I'm interested to see where that might lead, because I've always been fascinated by the way that different countries relate to each other. And I did, when I was at university, I did a thesis on 19th century American writers coming to Europe and sort of Henry James mm. and people like that, and their sort of impressions of home and abroad. So it was, yeah, that idea of being a foreigner and when you stop becoming a foreigner, that, you know, I wonder whether Brexit wants tiny silver lining of it, but it might, might be that it leads to some interesting reconsideration of ourselves as a nation and our identity. And that might throw up some fascinating, mm. hopefully not too depressing things to write yeah. about. Yeah. So, yeah, but definitely still people focused. I would also really like to, this is such a cliche, I'd love to write a novel. Yeah. Um, but I read, I don't know whether you read the MFK Fisher novel. I the did theoretical not. foot. I love MFK Fisher, yes. and I mean, I really love her, and I think that she's one of the best food writers that's ever lived. Someone did warn me privately not to read the novel. I sort of wish I'd taken their advice. Um, I, I find it puzzling how someone that can write so beautifully about food and about life, you know, because her books are, are not just about food, are they? Right. Um, even when they seem to be about food, 
can just be so leaden in her fiction and I worry that that, I worry that, that might afflict, afflict me too. So I don't know, but I love that idea of that sort of romantic idea of, sort of sitting somewhere like the British Library, just, you know, create other world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very attractive to me, but whether I actually do it is, is, a, is another thing. I don't, I don't currently have an idea, but one day. Yeah. Then next you could potentially be the 21st century version of your university thesis and be the British writer who goes to America to... Uh, Oh, I mean, that <laughs> the would reverse, be yes. the Dickens, I guess you would yeah, do. In that so, case. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah, I really love the States. I think because I just feel in general, and this is meant as a compliment, that you're quite greedy as well as a country. I mean, it's hard to think of a country that doesn't love food, but, yeah. you know, in the sense of, you know, you're out and proud about it in a way that we're still not so much in the UK. And I love that fact that it's celebrated and I will, and this might be a, a guilty confession, but I just love that, um, you know, drivers dive in, what's it called? Diners, Diners drive, drive-ins yeah. and dives, I can yes. sit there for hours watching. Uh, <laughs> and it's not exactly for Guy Fieri, I have to admit. It's the, you know, the people that he meets. And like, I remember one of the ones I saw, which is quite old, I think, was this, um, I think it was a Filipino-Mexican diner somewhere in the southwest and it just had the most extraordinary things sort of mishmash of foods and I was like wow that's amazing yeah, I, yeah so I'd, I'd love to I'd love to come and eat more American food yeah. that's definitely on my radar yeah I think one of the most beautiful places I've ever been I went uh, to Pacific Northwest this is not just buttering you up it's true and <laughs> um, we went to the San Juan Islands oh, and yeah. we went out sea kayaking at sunset and ate that uh, like the giant kelp that you get just straight oh. out of the water I know initially people were very suspicious about it, but the, you know, the girl that was guiding us said, oh, try it, it's delicious. Oh my God, it was amazing. Obviously the whole scenery was the thing, but you know, eating yeah. giant kelp with an eagle above us, and oh, I just thought I could live here, yeah. definitely. And great gin as well from the San Juans. Yeah, I brought some of that, that back. Yeah, it's oh, very nice. All right. That, that, that would be the dream as well. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Oh, it's such a fun read. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Glad right. you enjoyed it. Many thanks to Felicity Cloak for taking time out of her schedule to meet with me in London. One More Croissant for the Road actually isn't out in the U.S. yet, but we have import copies available in the store and on our website. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of One More Croissant for the Road and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in person, Mention that you heard about the book on the podcast and you'll get the 10% discount in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.